You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Thank you, Alex Friedman, and yes, this is Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Alex was nice enough to record an intro for us. He is the voice of the Oklahoma City Dodgers AAA baseball team and a good friend of the podcast, so thanks, uh, thanks to Alex for doing that. And joining us, as always, in Southampton, England, is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan. We have a special show today. Yeah, what is it? I'm very excited. What is it, Ryan? I, th- I think it's going to be a long one. You know, we've we've been here in quarantine for a while, and I had a chance to to do some writing. And you know, I was also thinking the other day we we just passed our our second anniversary of recording, beginning to record this podcast. And one of the reasons that we started doing this show in the first place was it's also back in February was the two year anniversary of the U.S. winning the gold medal in Pyeongchang. And that kind of inspired us to take you and I texting each other back and forth about curling and start recording those conversations. And that's where we are today. So I kind of wanted to just talk about do a full show on that moment and what it meant for USA curling and how we got from the beginning of the decade with USA curling to the end and John Schuster's place in all of that. And I I think we've decided we're just going to call this the ballad of John Schuster. I like that name. So I say we just roll with it. So you, you can provide some interesting background on this because you were involved in USA curling and involved in board meetings when a lot of changes were made at the start of the 2010s to the way USA curling selects its Olympic teams. And a lot of those changes really affected Schuster as a player as he battled to get back to the Olympics after um, after his performances in 2010 and then again in 2014. Yeah, I mean, I was on the board from 20, from like autumn 2010 to spring of 2013. So like a three-year mm-hmm. period. Uh, and and like looking back on it, a lot of what was going on there uh, really did set up USA Curling for, for change in a lot of ways, I think. Um yeah, there are a lot of fights. I mean, that was pro- for people who are kind of are really deep in the weeds of USA curling. The big fight at that point in time was about changing the bylaws, and uh, I think it got voted down once and had to be kind of reformulated. And around that time is when Derek Brown was hired as the high performance director, and um, it was also essentially the moment where they they were trying to set up a high performance program proper. Um, so. Yeah, it was kind of interesting time to be in that board and see the the changes the organization was was a part of. Yeah, and we will get into all of that as our story progresses, but we will I guess we can start all the way back in 2002. So, 
what, four Olympics ago when the Olympics were in Salt Lake. And it was a big moment for USA curling because curling got a lot of TV time in Salt Lake with the Olympics being in the U.S. and those games being allowed to, to be shown live because, you know, the, the time zones worked out basically. But Schuster actually attended those Salt Lake Olympics in 2002 with his parents, Jackie and Tom. He tells the story, told the story to TeamUSA.org that back in 2002, when tickets were going on sale, he called right when they were supposed to go on sale. And he actually wound up calling a couple minutes early. And they said, I'm sorry, you have to call back in five minutes. And he said, well, can you just put me on hold for five minutes? And they agreed. (laughs) So after he was on hold, he and his parents were able to get tickets to freestyle aerials prelims. So they go to Salt Lake, they go to those, they also wind up going to several curling matches, short track speed skating, doubles luge, and Schuster says he remembers standing next to the luge track um, and hears the sound of those athletes sliding past, and he said he was there when one of the U.S. doubles teams realized that they had won silver, and Schuster said being there for that was something that I'm getting goosebumps telling you the story right now because that's one of those things that can fuel somebody for an extremely long period of time. And that will go on to fuel John Schuster for about 16 years uh, until we get to his triumph in 2018. We then go to the 2006 Olympics in Torino and Schuster is playing third for Pete Finson and they win bronze there in Torino. Schuster then goes on and forms his own team. And in 2009, the U.S. National Championship also served as the 2010 Olympic team trials in Broomfield, Colorado. The men's event seemed pretty wide open, and that field included Team Schuster, defending champion Craig Brown, and the previous year's runner-up Chris Disher, as well as 2007 champion and world bronze medalist Todd Burr, Tyler George, and a Mike Farbelow team whose lineup included friend of the program Nick Myers and Joe Polo as an alternate. At that 2009 U.S. National Championship slash Olympic team trials, Schuster started kind of slow. He started two and three with losses to George Burr and Kevin Doreen before rattling off four straight wins to finish in a tie for second with Burr at six and three. And Jonathan, here is where we can kind of go into a rabbit hole of alternate history because he winds up in a tie for second with Burr for that going into that page playoff. But instead of Burr, just getting second place because he had beaten Schuster in the round robin, they actually held a tiebreaker. So the tiebreaker was held and Schuster rattled off nine unanswered points after Burr stole one in the first in. So now Schuster is in the page one, two game. So again, we go down this rabbit hole. What if they had just given Todd Burr the berth in the page one, two game? What if Schuster had lost that tiebreaker for the one, two game? So we go to the page one, two game. Schuster loses to Tyler George and then beats Burr in the semifinal to set up a rematch with George for the right to go to the Olympics. George made a delicate tap and roll to take a 4-1 lead after three. So again, Schuster starting a little bit slow here. In the fourth, Schuster made a draw for four to jump back into the lead. And Jonathan, I really wish that a full recording of this game uh, was somewhere on the internet because it just it looked insane. I've only seen the highlights that are posted. This game was actually broadcast on Universal Sports Network. So Schuster makes a draw for four to take the lead five to four. 
with a heap of George stones in the house, Schuster able, was able to hit his way out of trouble to force George to draw for one in the eighth. In nine, Schuster had two rocks in the forefoot behind a long guard. George went after them, but flashed his takeout to give Schuster a draw to the paint for three and a 10 to eight advantage. George then came up short on a draw for the tie in 10 to send Team Schuster to Vancouver. The two semifinals and finals from this tournament were broadcast on what was then called Universal Sports Network, and it was the first non-Olympic broadcast of curling in U.S. history. So as with most of the tournaments that Schuster would participate in for the next 10 years, it seems like just a wild up-and-down tournament for John Schuster that wound up with him going to the Olympics as the skip in 2010. I mean, that, and it was a surprise, right? I think um, that team was certainly wasn't one of the favorites going in, uh, I'd say. Probably going in, it was probably Burr was probably the one that the people had picked out to be the, the favorite. Yeah, he was a world bronze medalist. World, world bronze medalist, yeah. And that was probably peak Todd Burr. Like, like when I was... When I was curling in Minnesota early 2000s, like Burr was probably the top team in, in the state back then. And like Rich Ruin was kind of the up and coming challenger in the state kind of thing. So, but no, so Burr would have been the favorite back then. Uh, Schuster, wa- and then probably, and then Schuster would have been like the, the kind of upstart team. Um, so it was a big surprise that they won. Uh, I think also 2010s really for me, the, the switching point when we talk about curling. I think that's that's the Olympics where curling went pro. Like Not all the teams there were pro, but they, I remember t- I have a couple of got very vivid memories of that Olympics. And one was just the way the games were staged in Vancouver, just the like watching the games, having this kind of really intense in-your-face crowd. It was kind of staged in a way where the, the crowd was really tight to the sheets. Very loud crowd, too. Uh, being in a country mm-hmm. that kind of knows curling pretty well. Um, it was kind of the first time where curling, you could kind of see what curling could be as a TV event. Like before that, it was kind of the more, outside of Canada, it was a, a lot more kind of quiet kind of event, right? Um, second thing is just the way the Martin team rolled through uh, the 2010 Olympics. And kind of, it kind of showed what what level a professional curling team could play at. That was really the switching point, I'd say. The athleticism, the shot making, the depth of the team from start to finish. If you just go back even to like 2006, which is like a good, like everyone on that team, everyone on like the gold medal team from that team is like an all, you know, all pro, all star, whatever, right? The, the Gushu Howard team. But that was kind of a thrown together team. And it's, it's early in, in Gushu and, and, uh, and Mark Nichols's career, right? So it's not quite the same level, and it's after 2010 that like the athleticism takes off and the professionalization really kicks in. And if you, like being around Minnesota in the the 2000s, it was still pretty quiet, right? Like there, there's a we were kind of before we were recording looking at some of the old curling zone scores, and we kind of dug up a, a spiel I played in uh, where we were in the same pool as the fencing team for 2006, this would have been 2004, 2005 time. And really all the top U S teams at that time were playing kind of cash spiel circuit, upper Midwest, maybe going up to Canada. Um, you know, 
once a season or twice a season, but really points chasing wasn't a thing yet. I remember like while I was there that the USA curling introduced its own order of merit system. And I think most of the curls at the time made fun of it. I think there's like no, like no serious team these days. All they care about is the points and the strength of field multiplier, not how much money there is back then. It was how much money there is. And is there a good party at the curling club on Saturday night with the two criteria for a cash spiel? Right. And now it's, uh, <laughs> Teams probably try to avoid the party, and I really care primarily about the points. So it's a big shift in the last 15 years, I'd say. And Schuster really, I think, are kind of right person, right time, right? Like if he doesn't win that tournament, maybe he, you know, he, you kind of wonder what happens to John Schuster, the the curler. But I think getting to go to the Olympics is skip, getting to go for a second time, and kind of really being part of that transition moment um, is important, I'd say. So Schuster wins U.S. Nationals to become Team USA in February of 2009. So he has all summer and all fall to prepare for the February Olympics in 2010. And this is this is kind of the format that we've heard Canada kind of wondering out loud about if they should have their championship the year before. So Schuster does have all summer and all fall to prepare goes into the 2009-2010 season knowing that he's Team USA and we get to the Olympics in 2010. And to give everyone some perspective that we will come back to later in this show, you look at the media guide that USA Curling put out in 2009-2010 and there's a note in there that says that in America, there are approximately 16,000 curlers and more than 140 clubs. We will come back to that number here at the end of the show. The start of the 2010 Olympic curling tournament was less than ideal for Team USA. After losing to Andy Cap in Germany in draw number one, Schuster saw his opponents steal in an extra end in three consecutive games. First against Thomas Ulsrud and Norway, then the Swiss team led by Marcus Egler and Ralph Stockley, and then again against Ulrich Schmidt, Johnny Fredrickson, and Denmark. The Danish loss was especially devastating because they stole points in 10 and 11 to send the U.S. to 0-4. After the loss to Denmark, Schuster told the Associated Press, I've always said everything happens for a reason, and for some reason it just apparently isn't meant to be. If it was meant to be, we'd be 3-1 and right now instead of 0-4 having shots to win all those games. We've made those shots to get here, so it's disappointing. In the aftermath of that loss to Denmark, Schuster's Wikipedia page is vandalized with edits that range from unfunny to distasteful, and it is eventually locked for editing. He is benched for the next game against France, with Chris Plies skipping at third and Jason Smith throwing last rocks. This time, it's the Americans who steal in the extra end for their first win of the tournament. After the game, coach Phil Drobnik told the Associated Press, it was a coaching staff decision. We put what we thought was our best team forward. It's never easy being 0-4. Nobody likes it. I'm really proud of the way the guys came out and played today. They showed leadership. They showed control on the ice, and they got a win for us. For their next game against Sweden, Schuster returns to the ice as skip, but is now throwing third with Jason Smith still throwing fourth. The U.S. curlers made it two straight Olympic wins with an 8-7 to extra end victory over Sweden. Schuster was again skipping from the third position against David Murdoch and Great Britain in the next game. 
Murdoch was able to wrestle control of the house away from the U.S. time and again in a game that saw five blanks and a 4-2 to two Great Britain victory. After that game, Schuster told the Associated Press, We really played some great ends in that game. It's too bad Jason and I struggled a bit. What makes it so hard is we've been in all these games. If we'd gone out there and gotten blown away in a bunch of games, it probably would feel it would probably feel a lot worse. We came here and battled this week. Uh, John Benton uh, told the Associated Press, I was thinking about it sitting on the bench today. At this point, it's hard to go back and try to take things back. I think a couple of weeks from now, we'll look back and find a ton of positives coming together as a team and getting through the hardships we've had this week. I kind of felt if we didn't win today that I would have this depression that I'd be kind of bummed, but I'm really not that bummed. I feel like we came here and represented our country well. Uh, Jason Smith was a little less democratic, at least about his own play. He said, I just threw it like crap. I'm not going to lie about it and say it overcurled or anything. The guys played great in front of me. I just needed to make more shots. I'll take 100% of the blame for that one. I was the slacker out there today. I'm going to hear my gramps say it anyway, so I might as well say it out loud. That loss basically eliminated the U.S. from any chance at the playoffs. Uh, Their next game was against Canada and saw the U.S. steal in the first end. One of two stolen ends against Kevin Martin during the entire round robin. But Canada took control in the second half of the game and cruised to a 7-2 win. The team reverted to their original lineup for the final game against China. Again, it ended early with an exasperated Schuster at one point saying, I hate this stupid game out of frustration. And I'll be honest, Jonathan, that moment watching watching that China game from my living room in Oklahoma City... I just I related to John Schuster at that point where he just knows that the hope is gone and just mumbling to yourself, I hate this stupid game. Honestly, that's when I kind of connected to to him and this became my team. And that was when that was that was at the time that I also started curling. So really, my connection to this game is also a connection to this stupid team that I'll wind up following for the better part of a decade. So hearing him say that, that's when that's when it really clicked for me that like this is my guy. I think he's great because he's got no filter, right? Like yeah. th- there's a lot of curlers who are very like a lot of the TV curlers are you know get media savvy pretty quick. That <laughs> if the mic's on, it's going to be recorded. I think he just doesn't care and says what he's thinking and what he's feeling. I, I, to me, that's always been the most fascinating part of. John Schuster that uh, and, 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 you know we can we can talk later on about some of the post Olympic stuff where there's like the minor controversies like the world's a few years back and it's it's like the controversies I think just come from the fact he'll just say what he thinks or what he's feeling at that moment and uh, it's kind of refreshing right because a lot of especially the Canadian curlers is a lot who are a lot more media savvy perhaps a bit buttoned down and, and make for for less interesting TV but Schuster's definitely kind of interesting TV, if nothing else. I think the, I think the comparison there living in the American South, the comparison there is NASCAR. And one of the reasons that I think NASCAR's ratings and attendance has dropped is the drivers are all just so media prepped and you don't have the guys like Petty and Earnhardt anymore who don't have a filter and will say whatever, or Rusty Wallace was that way too, will just say whatever's on their mind. Uh, and you don't really have that in NASCAR anymore. And I think that that's really what's killing their sport. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, I'll say that when I went to the Worlds, the thing that kind of surprised me is Gushu off camera is a broom slammer. So he missed the shot. And it's clear he's waiting for the break, the TV to cut the break. Then he slammed his broom. And he's like the last guy I would think of as slamming a broom. But he's he, oh, wow. apparently I was asked, I was like, oh, yeah, he actually is. But he's media savvy enough to know not to do it on camera. Until whereas, the red light goes off. <laughs> until the red light goes off. Whereas John Morris, I mean, early John Morris was completely unfiltered, right? Like they're ripping his shirt off at a briar, smashing, snapping a broom. Um, he still actually is also great TV. I'm, it's, I'm part of why I'm kind of glad he's coming back is him and him and Ben Hebes, who's another kind of great TV guy, uh, mic'd up. It's it's entertaining, right? But um, yeah, there's a lot. A lot of others are a bit more media savvy. Perhaps their sponsors have kind of put a word in their ear or their agents or whatever. So it's kind of, I think, something lost a bit with uh, the professionalization of the game that you you lose a bit of the character, like you say, that the teams become a bit afraid to step in it but i don't think schuster's ever really been afraid or at least he hasn't learned i don't think he cares after that china game uh nbc had a big feature on the u.s struggles at the vancouver games schuster told nbc what's demoralizing for me is the amount of work and sacrifice we made this year i had a look back when we started at 0 and 4 and it kind of seemed like it was over with all the sacrifices we made it would have been nice to at least been rewarded by being in the chase a little longer uh, NBC also wrote, while new curling members are being signed up from Seattle to San Francisco and clubs are popping up in places like North Carolina and Florida, USA Curling soon plans to reevaluate its structure. There will be discussions about how it picks its national teams. Both squads for these games qualified nearly a year ago. The favored Canadians, on the other hand, had their Olympic trials in December. From an organization standpoint, it was great. Allison Pottinger said, was it too long? I don't know, but I'm not sure six weeks is enough either. Phil Drobnik uh, told NBC, it will be a good thing to consider such issues as the Americans begin moving to, uh, forward toward the 2014 Sochi Games. So the changes that we're about to see and that we're about to talk about were probably in the making months before what happened in Vancouver, um, but very quickly after Vancouver, things started to change. Uh, in March of 2011, uh, USA Curling hires a director of high performance named Derek Brown uh, from Scotland, and he comes to the program to oversee the development and impl implementation of elite level programs from the talent identification level to Olympic and world championships. His immediate priority is to develop and implement a long-term high-performance plan incorporating knowledge gained from the 2010 independent and internal high-performance program reviews. So the real board meeting was, uh, the big ones were right after the Olympics, um, so spring 2010 and then fall 2010. Uh, so U.S. Olympic Committee... Uh, always does an audit for every single national governing body after every Olympics. And so basically they look at where they've put money and if that money gets results. And so they started to ramp up the funding after 2006 because of the bronze medal. And so 2006 in a certain sense, that, that bronze medal performance by USA curling puts USA curling on the United States Olympic committee's map as a sport that USA can meddle in. And so 
over the next cycles, money's put in, but then the next Olympics, it's not just Schuster. The women's team also does, I think they finished ninth, but they also didn't do very well either. And so um, there's basically a big audit. And so there was this big hundred page report that uh, the board got to see. Uh, and it, it went through everything. It, it kind of was like this, um, you know, everything from team dynamics to how the coaching was run to how the office functioned. Um, and the, the gist of it is that the United States Olympic Committee thought the problems were with how USA curling was run. And they, they sent this letter. They basically sent a one-page letter. And they said, we're not funding you for next year, was the gist of it. They basically said, your funding's been put in escrow. Uh, we want to see a change in the board structure. That Basically, the way the board is structured is like an amateur club sport board. And we want to see an independently run board that appoints a CEO to run the organization. And that CEO has complete discretion in terms of the day-to-day operations of the organization. And the CEO has to then appoint a high performance director. So basically they wanted a shift in how the organization was structured to make it similar to every other um, national governing body for an Olympic sport. And that, I mean, I think curlers often think they're special, right? And so a lot of the grassroots pushback was that that the Olympics didn't really understand our sport, that the USA Curling Association had been around since the 60s, that it wasn't simply about Olympic and high-level performance stuff. And so that really created this grassroots versus high-performance schism, if you will, within the organization. And so for most of my time there, that was what the fights were about. Um, but the simple fact was that there's basically a million dollars coming in from the United States Olympic Committee, and that's the block grant, and they're basically funding most of the organization. I think fees at that time was was six or seven hundred thousand dollars. So more money was coming in from the U.S. Olympic Committee than from any other source of revenue. And if your number one funder is basically saying you have to do these things or we're going to pull the funding, then that really is a lot of pressure. Right. There's no two ways about it. It's all fine and good if you're on the outside to say, well, just ignore them. But that basically means the organization, if it doesn't collapse, it probably contracts in a lot of ways. And so that was it was that actually that fall board meeting that really led to a lot of the changes. Yeah. And in the the board meeting that was right after Derek Brown was hired, you know, they were talking about basically the USOC told the USCA that revenue is insufficient apart from those that USOC funding and that USDA's yeah. main revenue is USOC funding and dues. And they advised the USCA to find other sources of revenue. And thus far, they had failed to do that. And that was one of the big pushes, I believe, for getting appointing a CEO and going down this route. But the US didn't have, the USCA didn't have the resources to split grassroots and the elite program into two organizations. So it was, we've said this a lot before in this podcast, but it was kind of this adolescent phase where you, you're, you're not quite fully professional because you don't have the resources to be, but you have to have, you try to have the ability to both promote grassroots and run an elite program with the same people, basically. Yeah. With the same people. I mean, I think they did hire at this point in time, like a, a, a club growth and development officer as well. So it's not as if they were ignoring the demands of the grassroots. And I actually think there was a lot of positive changes on that front too. 
but from a high performance perspective, basically they said there's there's no one person running your program, and it it you don't have someone thinking long term, right? And so the the point of the high performance director was basically to be like the analogy would be like a general manager, who you know, and like a professional sports team, who's you know, hiring and firing the coaches, but also looking long-term at development of the farm system for lack of a better term, right? And that um, curlers, I, I think, actually do take a long time. And this, this is one of the things where I think the USOC doesn't quite get curling, that because there's a high degree of kind of mental aspect to the game, um, it's a late developing sport, right? That understanding the ta- tactics and strategy takes years of experience. Understanding the touch part of the game takes years. And so even though the coaching's improved over the last decade or so, so now you can have people be high-performance curlers in their 20s, um, it's not like, like in basketball, at 18, you're, you you can actually, if you're like one of the best basketball players on the planet, compete in the NBA. I think it's a lot harder for like an 18-year-old curler to compete, um, say, in a slam, right? Well, Exhibit A, there is the person we're talking about right now. So we fast forward to July 7th of 2011, and USA Curling announces that eight teams have been invited to participate in the High Performance National Team Program. The invited teams include four at the elite level and four considered developmental, the latter termed Project 2018. The high performance teams included those skipped by Pete Fenson, Tyler George, Patty Lank, and Erica Brown. So this is July of 2011 is actually the first time that John Schuster came off of an Olympics and was not invited to participate in the high performance program. So he wasn't invited then either? No, he was not invited then either. On August 19th of 2011, USA Curling announces another change, this time in how the Olympic team is selected. They announce that there will be an Olympic trials. The way teams can qualify for these trials is teams that finish first and second at the 2012 and 2013 U.S. Nationals will automatically qualify. The High Performance Selection Committee when uh, we'll then select additional teams if necessary. And when selecting those teams for the trial, we'll give strong consideration to athlete or team success at previous world championships, order of merit, world curling tour events, and nationals over the previous three years, which is 2011, 2012, and 2013. While there is a degree of subjectivity to the selection, the decision of the High Performance Selection Committee will be final. In the event of a tied vote, the director of High Performance will make the final decision. That brings us to 2012. And in 2012, kind of a surprise, Heath McCormick wins U.S. Nationals. I believe that was the year that McCormick ran the table uh, and went undefeated at U.S. Nationals. So he finishes first, Pete Finson finishes second, and John Schuster finishes third. In the semifinal, Finson scored three in the 10th to beat Schuster eight to five, which gave Finson an automatic berth in those Olympic trials. Uh, this will become important later. Heath McCormick goes on to finish eighth at Worlds. July of 2012, 60 athletes are named to the High Performance National Team Program for 2012-2013. The men's teams include teams skipped by Heath McCormick, Pete Finson, and Tyler George. So once again, 
no John Schuster on this team. However, two individuals from his team, Jared Zezel and John Landsteiner, are selected for this program as Project 2018 individuals. So this is the second time that John Schuster has been left off of the high-performance team selection. We get to the 2012-2013 season, and we get to the 2013 U.S. Nationals, the last chance to automatically qualify for the Sochi Olympic Trials. At those, at those Nationals, Brady Clark finishes first, Tyler George finishes second, and Schuster again finishes third. This time, Brady Clark steals in 10 in the semifinals after Schuster's draw to the forefoot winds up top eight. That sends Clark to the final against Tyler George, where he wins. And also, another important note, Clark finishes ninth at Worlds. What this means is that with McCormick finishing eighth and Clark finishing ninth, the U.S. does not earn enough points to automatically qualify for the 2014 Olympics. The U.S. finishes eighth in Olympic points, one point behind Switzerland for the final automatic spot, meaning the winner of the U.S. Olympic trials must go to the Olympic qualification event in Fusen, Germany, in order to earn their spot in Sochi. In May of 2013, the U.S. Curling's High Performance Selection Committee selects the John Schuster rink as the final men's team to bring the men's field to five for the 2013 Olympic trials. Jonathan, do you remember anything about that selection, if that was um, in question at all, or if it was always known that the Schuster team would, would be selected to these trials? I was, it was at the board meeting. I was not on the committee. I remember being in the bar, in the hotel bar. And uh, <laughs> someone who was on that committee, he's little, I'll say two things. I think, I think often in the story of John Schuster, um, Derek Brown is made as the villain. <laughs> like the, you know, the, the evil man oh, we'll who's get, like trying to crush Schuster's oh, we'll dreams. Um, <laughs> um, my, I don't quite remember who I, I can't remember who was on the committee, but I was sit, I was sitting there having beers with some people who were not on the committee, and someone came down, and he's like he came down for a beer. He's like, oh, we're taking a break, so they're just having a beer, and this person kind of intimated to me that actually Derek might have been pushing for Schuster, making a case that the stats bore out that he was a good curler, and I was like, oh, it's interesting, and then he went back up, and then it was kind of announced a few days later, um, so. I don't. I, I. I. think it's often easy from the outside looking in to just assume there's like an anti-Schuster thing going on, but in the defense of the people doing the selection, Schuster had only won by this point in time, 2010, right? Mm-hmm. Hadn't really placed all that well at U.S. trials, and I don't think we don't really have the history of the order of merit stuff. But the one of the big things that Derek was really pushing was you got to go out on tour. You have to go out and play the Canadian Spiels. You have to be earning order of merit points, and you've got to demonstrate results on tour week after week. And if you go look at like USA team standings in like 2010, like they were nowhere to be seen, right? Whereas mm-hmm. now you've got several that are kind of on both sides, both the men's and women's sides that are regularly qualifying for slams. That was just not happening back in 2010. So for good or for ill, the Go out on tour, play a lot of point, play a lot of games, 
earn a lot of order of merit points. That's the model that high performance programs around the, the world have been pushing. And that does actually get the results. And I think that I suspect that what happened that year without kind of being able to go into the time machine and see what Schuster's world curling tour results were that year, they were probably promising enough to make him the, the fifth selection. So Schuster goes into the U.S. Olympic curling team trials, which is held separately from the national championships as the last team selected. The teams he he is facing have beaten him at nationals and have been a part of the high performance program. So it's safe to say that he's not exactly the favorite going into this tournament, but he rewards the high performance committee for their faith in him by winning the double round robin. He finishes six and two, which puts him in a best of three series for the right to go to the Olympic Games against his former skip, Pete Finson. In game one, Schuster goes up eight to three before giving up a deuce, a steal of two, and another steal of one in the ninth. He finally converts with hammer in 10 to take a 1-0 advantage in the series. In game two, Finson scores one with hammer in the extra to force a decisive game three. Game three is about as anticlimactic as any curling game I've ever seen. If you thought this year's Briar final was a blowout, um, the ice baffled Finson from the start and he shakes after four down 11 to one in the middle of an environment that was described as being as quiet as a funeral. Schuster celebrated that he was one step away from Sochi, but first the newly crowned team USA had to go to Fusen, Germany to participate in the 18 Olympic qualification event. The top three teams in the round robin would advance to playoffs with the top two teams in the round robin playing for the first available spot in the Olympics and the loser of that game playing the third place team for the last spot. Once again, it was a slow start for the Team USA men. They lost their first game on the way to a 2-2 two and two start, meaning they would basically need to win their last three games to have a shot at making the playoffs. They did just that, creating a four-way tie for first with Korea, the Czech Republic, and Germany. Round robin losses to Germany and the Czechs put them in a tiebreaker with Korea for third place. After earning their second win over Korea, they entered a winner-take-all game with Yuri Schnittel and the Czech Republic, who had beaten them in the tournament's first draw. The U.S. found itself down 3-2 to two with Hammer in the eighth. The end plays out almost like a five-rock rule game, with both skips playing extremely aggressively. Schnittel's first is a freeze attempt that didn't quite get there and Schuster played a takeout that somehow doubled out the only two Czech rocks to sit four. Snittle now had a couple of options. He could play a double and give up three and survive in advance, or he could try to hide somewhere and maybe force Schuster to draw for one or two. Snittle tried a run-back double that overcurled, which sent his center guard harmlessly through the house. That gave... Schuster an open draw to the paint to score what's this five in the eighth end Schuster made it and for all intents and purposes this game was over the U.S. won eight to five to claim the 10th and final spot in Sochi after the game uh, Schuster gave probably the best mixed zone answer I think I've ever heard uh, the WCF sender Rolvag asked him uh, if there was going to be some celebrating that night, uh, to which Schuster responded, uh, maybe a little bit, but I hate flying being hungover. <laughs> <laughs> I actually hate flying hungover, too. 
Well, everyone does. That's what makes him so relatable is he's willing to say it out loud. <laughs> so we go into the 2014 Olympics. Schuster entered the Sochi Games with plenty of Olympic experience, but did not appear at a Worlds during the previous quad. This was his first big international competition since the previous Games. In addition, he had not participated in a Grand Slam event since the Vancouver Games. So between end of Vancouver, start of Sochi, no appearances at Worlds, and no Grand Slam events. So this is his first really big talent-filled tournament that he's participating in since the Vancouver Games. Yeah, I mean, I think the fear then was that he would go back and um, fall apart again, right? Like, like 2010, I remember a few things. That's, that's when we were launching the Oklahoma Curling Club, and actually, for me, it was pandemonium. Uh, and I remember one guy just called me up to rant about John Schuster, that he saw the the phone number uh, on our webpage, and he just called and wanted to rant about John Schuster to me. And it was just kind of a bit red. I was like, well, what do you want me to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> Wild that people watching curling for the first time in Oklahoma wanted to call someone just to rant about someone, how someone they never met was performing in the Olympics. Well, they saw that's the Oklahoma Curling Club's number, right? And so well, just tell them he sucked. I was like, I don't, I, you know, I'm sure sports franchises get these kind of random phone calls all the time, right? So I figured we would somehow know. I, I remember we were playing at a bond spiel in Dallas. And I mean, the joke was quite cruel. But so, you know, it was basically people took signs and started writing what WW. Uh, oh, the Dallas club. The Dallas club yeah. was extremely not cool about any of this. Like they were selling shirts that yeah. said, what would John Schuster do? Yeah. What would Schuster do? Yeah. <laughs> It was kind of like, so I read, that would have been like, I don't know what, when would that have been like May or something? That was, just, yeah, that was like, beer spiel? yeah, that was like May of yeah. 2010. Yeah. So, I mean, he was for that quad, the laughing stock of American curling. And so the fear is that he'd go back and not do that well. And then, you know, the other, the other thing to say is the USA barely scrapes in, right? That they don't place all that well in the previous two worlds. They don't have enough mm -hmm. points. They they barely qualify through the Olympic qualification event. Yeah. Um yeah. The women I, I, think, I think qualified quite comfortably. Uh not I remember we were in the board meeting uh the year before and like the, the discussion was we're kind of in the danger zone with both teams not qualifying. And Again, basically, if both teams had not qualified, which is basically one or two spots at the Worlds, right, and then not get out of the Olympic, get, get out of the OQE, it's quite possible United States Olympic Committee pulls the funding entirely, right? Like they, they just base. I remember watching the game. I remember watching the game against Yuri Schnittel um, at that Olympic qualification event, and when. Schuster won, you texted me and said that was worth 30 members of Oklahoma Curling Club. Oh, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we got, we picked up a hundred members in 2010 just because the curling was on TV. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, we talked about this with Mark. No, like very early on, it was same, same thing. Like basically he was saying that Oklahoma Curling Club probably goes under without the, the Olympic bump they got from, yep. Schuster, right? And that's when they win. So if they're not in the Olympics, then curling curling's not going to be on NBC Sports. 
if there's no USA team to cheer for, and then there's probably no curling, right? Yep. So we get to the 2014 games, and the U.S. starts one and three. In game one against Norway, the U.S. was down five to one after three ends. Against China, China controlled game two, game two, and the U.S. shook after eight. They finally broke through with a nine to five win over Denmark. That, just like the other games, didn't start well. Uh, Rashmus Sterna put three on the board in the first, but the U.S. scored seven unanswered points, including five stolen points, to win nine to five. After that game, uh, Schuster told the AP. Uh, that he had received a text message from his wife, Sarah, the night before telling him to just go out and have more fun. Uh, Schuster said, it really changed my complete being. All of a sudden, I had a better attitude and holy cow, I threw the rock better too. After the loss to Great Britain that dropped them to one in three, the U.S. responded with a victory over Germany. Uh, the U.S. scored in only two ends, but they were both four enders in an eight to five win. Jonathan, I gotta say, the watching the Sochi Olympics as a fan of USA curling, like if it, it was an acid trip. Like you go back and look at some of those line scores, and it's some of them were insane. <laughs> I remember. So the game I could watch was the 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 GB one, and I remember that because like. Murdoch had like a grin on his face. I remember early on because Schuster kept piling it in or like early ends, and Murdoch's like, "You're sure you want to do that?" Like he just went all out kind of thing, um, hyper aggressive. I mean, and that's always been like Schuster's style, right? Mm-hmm. But um, like, not. I I think he's learned a bit better how to manage the scoreboard uh, over the years, and uh, I remember that GB game. I think it was just like I'm going to go out and try to win the game in the first end kind of thing, and Murdoch just didn't blink, right? And Murdoch ended up with a silver and Schuster did not, right? So um, yeah, they, they were playing a very, very aggressive style, especially for that. Um, this is like pre-five rock. And I think most elite teams at that point in time had gone a bit more defensive. This was like kind of the peak Brad Jacobs. We're just going to kind of keep blasting stuff until you blink and give us a two kind of approach to the game. And Schuster was really doing a max aggressive kind of approach in that Olympics. So the U S beats Germany. They are now two and three and the U S at least has a chance at the playoffs. They finished the tournament with Canada, Sweden, and Switzerland, but a win against the host Russia would put them at three and three with at least a puncher's chance to sneak in. As was the case in every game, but the great Britain game, the U S started without hammer. Russia blanked in one and got two in the second. It should have been three, but the fourth Alexei Stulkowski was too deep on his first, giving Schuster an easy double. It could have possibly been a force, but Schuster looked looked like he took too much ice with his hit and it rolled away. In the third, Russia had three guards covering a gaggle of staggered rocks with Russia sitting one on the button. Schuster had to try an in off of his own rock to try and score one. Again, it didn't curl enough, and Russia was up three to nothing. However, the U.S. fought back thanks to some errors from the Russians. In the third, after putting their first rock top four, Russian skip Alexei Drozdov wanted to come in behind the U.S. corner guard with his lead second rock. 
However, it was well short, giving the U.S. staggered corner guards. Um, To say this game was error-filled on both sides would be an understatement, Uh, but the important thing uh, was the U.S. scored three in the fourth to tie it up. Don't ask me how. It doesn't matter that all three U.S. counters were in the 12-foot well behind the T-line. All that matters was that there were three U.S. counters. Uh, The teams traded deuces, and then the U.S. stole one in the seventh after a blank in eighth. Schuster was heavy with a freeze attempt with his last shot in nine that should have resulted in a pretty easy deuce for Russia. However, uh, Stukalski, uh, who, by the way, was Jason Gunlingson's teammate when Gunlingson played in Russia, saw his last (laughs) rock over curl uh, and the U.S. rock uh, clipped theirs in the back, meaning that they only scored one. This gave the U.S. a tie with hammer in 10. However, uh, John Landsteiner's tick attempt with his first was just a little bit heavy and went through the house. Russia staggered their center guards. Landsteiner's attempted come around, uh, drifted to the back of the button. Drozdov uh, drew to the pin, and it was game on from there. Uh, I want to take a moment here to pause and reflect on one of the biggest differences between Team USA slash Team Schuster in 2018 and their previous iterations. Uh, It's clear going back and watching these games that one of the biggest differences was the play of John Landsteiner. Watching him in 2014 and watching him in 2018, you can really tell the effort that he put into becoming an excellent lead. With his last shot, uh, Stolkowski drew corner frozen with the Russian rock that was already on the button behind a long corner guard. Uh, As Schuster got into the hack to throw a T-line draw to try and nudge the Russian rock, uh, the crowd starts chanting and blowing horns. Uh, The front end uh, starts sweeping midway down the sheet, and Schuster and Igazikson tried to call them off, but the front end just couldn't hear them. Uh, Eventually, they were able to call them off, but it was too late. Schuster's rock catch caught about a quarter of an inch too thin. It rolled too much, and the Russians claimed victory. As they were leaving the ice, you could hear Schuster on his mic say to his teammates, I was yelling at the top of my lungs, there was nothing you could do. It was a great moment for Russia, uh, who saluted an ecstatic Ice Cube Arena and was basically the end of the line for the U.S. The slow motion replay of Schuster frantically waving his arms like a referee signaling incomplete became the indelible image uh, of the games for USA curling. After the game, um, Schuster told the Pioneer Press, it's one of those where it's as precise a shot as you've got to make and to have to do it with no communication was tough. I'm proud of how close we got. If that thing curls a quarter of an inch more, our shot doesn't roll as far and we win. They say football is a game of inches. Curlers wish they had inches. It's the Russian Olympic fans cheering for Russia. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a great thing. But what I saw when I got in the hack to throw my last shot was every player on the Russian team standing there and trying to quiet the fans down. That shows what a class act they are. It's unfortunate, but I'm not upset about that. At the same time, no matter what shot you're playing, you want to be able to communicate. Their tournament was basically over, and Schuster then faced Brad Jacobs. The U.S. fell behind early, but fought hard to stay in the game. They had hammered down one in the 10th, but gave up a steal to Jacobs to officially end their chances at a medal. Uh, After the game, 
uh, Schuster told TwinCities.com, it's been a grueling year, but that's what we signed up for. It was an honor to win our shot, our slot uh, at the Olympic qualifiers. Uh, it's a bummer that things haven't gone as we hoped and expected. Alternate Craig Brown got a game at third in their loss to Sweden, and the U.S. went out with a loss to Switzerland, their fourth in a row, to again finish two and seven. I guess the, after that, the, rec, the story on John Schuster is he's not a good curler, right? Or at least not a good Olympic curler. Yeah, and I remember friends of mine on Twitter saying things like, why do we keep sending John Schuster to the Olympics? And my answer to them was because he keeps winning. He keeps beating the other USA curlers. He is the best we have. We don't send him. He earns the right to get there. And it's unfortunate that, especially in this case, the team could have probably been better prepared because they had no worlds between Vancouver and um, in Sochi, and they hadn't qualified for a GSOC event between Vancouver and Sochi. And that what that was USA curling at that point in time, right? I mean, remember the whole program that Derek Brown put in place was 2018, not 2014. That mm-hmm. I actually remember again to Derek's credit. Uh, not that I'm like. <laughs> Not all Derek Brown all the time, but to Derek's credit, he was um, he was kind of honest. He's like, you can't turn USA Curling from the last place program in the 2010 Olympics to gold medalists in one cycle. Like he he always sold it as a two cycle process. Uh, and in a certain sense, you're you're right. There's a there, there's a bit of improvement from the previous quad in terms of the performance. They were a better team, I'd say for sure, but the results just weren't quite there yet in terms of the wins and losses. And after Sochi, at which Brad Jacobs' team famously won gold, they, they announced another change to the U.S. High Performance Program. This time, they were basically going to select a group of athletes to the High Performance Program and then create teams out of that group of athletes. So that announcement comes in May of 2014 says uh, that High Performance Program Director Derek Brown and an advisory group including Olympic athletes and High Performance Program coaches met in Colorado Springs last week following a USOC High Performance Program Best Practices Seminar to further develop the details of the USCA's program and HPP athlete selection process. The first ever USCA High Performance Combine would be held July 19th through 23rd at the Four Seasons Curling Club in Blaine, Minnesota. The USCA HPP National Coaching Team would review the applicants and select participants. Athletes invited to the Combine would spend a one and a half days being assessed in technical, tactical, physical, and mental skills both on and off the ice. Following the combine, the USCA HPP staff would select a maximum of 30 athletes in total, men, women, and juniors, to the program for the 2014-2015 season. And so that brings us to this famous first ever combine. And on July 29th, 2014, the selection process is complete. The U.S. announces its first group of athletes for the high-performance program. 
At, after which Derek Brown says via a press release, the USCA's first combine was a great success where we saw an excellent standard of athlete going through a number of different assessments. The coaching team feels that we have selected the best available athletes in each group to bring future international success to the USA. The men that were selected to this team were Sean Baton, Craig Brown, Ryan Brunt, Colin Huffman, Alex Lecter, Heath McCormick, Croy Nurnberger, Chris Plies, Joe Polo, and Jared Zezel. Not selected among the men who participated, Matt Hamilton, John Landsteiner, Greg Persinger, and John Schuster. This is the moment that Schuster and the so-called rest of Team Reject point to as being their motivation. Schuster can recite with remarkable accuracy the quote attributed to Derek Brown in the official press release. Years later, he would tell the Minneapolis Star Tribune, uh, when I saw that quote, that's when I decided that was not the case. And I was going to make sure that that was known by winning. Derek Brown told the Star Tribune in that same story, it was a tough decision to cut Schuster. We knew John was very talented and experienced, but it's absolutely um, to his character and work ethic uh, to work hard and come back. What I haven't seen is a complete description of what really happened during that week in July of 2014. What did the combine entail? Was it set up to kind of ensure Schuster's failure? Or did he just go through the motions thinking he was a shoe-in to be selected after participating in two straight Olympics? You know, I haven't seen exactly what happened there. That's the piece of the puzzle that we're missing in this just remarkable story. Uh, I don't know all of it. I know because I was, I was over in the UK by that time. Um, I think that with the things that I've heard that have come out, so something similar to like a hot shots where you, you had a set of shots you had to demonstrate on ice. Um, there was video analysis, kind of some basic curling drill kind of stuff. The stuff that was a bit more, um, I guess a bit more NFL combine-y was they, they did this thing called a motion, a, a movement screen, which basically looks at, has your body do a bunch of motions and kind of looks to see what you're, where there's a kind of impingements in your mobility for lack of a better terminology. And they worked with some kind of uh, fitness instructor to kind of come up with some basic fitness testing as well. Uh, and apparently there's something along the lines of an intelligence test or personality test. So some kind of psychological factor too. Kind of like the Wonderlick. Kind of like the Wonderlick. I mean, the, the, the word combine sounds a lot like the NFL combine. Um, and it, it's what's funny to me about this is if you're a student of the game's history, uh, Canada did the exact same thing in 1987, yeah. right? And I, I'm right with with the famous kind of battle of the balls where Randy yeah. Furby and Ed Wernick were told they were too fat, and, and Paul Savage they all had to lose weight, right? So, and if you if you actually go listen to the Legends of Curling podcast, there's um, one of the things that Kevin Palmer does. He interviews basically everyone who's been involved in that, and What's funny is everyone's got uh, a different, a slightly different yeah. take on it, precisely what happened. But you know, I think it's similar. The one that like, Warren Hansen's basically the Derek Brown of Canadian curling, like the like the, the bad, <laughs> the bad evil official trying to professionalize the game and ruin all the fun and take the game out of the players' hands and all this. 
And I think his point was that if curling wanted to be taken seriously in the Olympics, it had to come across the sport and not just be a bunch of guys, you know, drinking and smoking and, and throwing curling shots. Uh, and in a certain sense, right, Warren Hansen was wrong in 88. Like he lost the Battle of the Balls in a certain sense in terms of the bad press. Uh, but the game has gone the direction that Warren Hansen saw in 88. Right, like he was a visionary in the sense that these are the things curling has to do if it wants to get into the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were living in Warren Hansen's world for for good or for ill. Uh, so in a certain sense, the US USA curling's a good what? Uh, what by twenty fourteen is what twenty five years, twenty twenty six years behind Canada in this respect. Similar idea, and it's not that outlandish, right? A lot of other sports do similar things in terms of trying to assess who you're going to take for a team. Uh, and, but again, it's like, if you have a, the NFL combine, they're going to have years of data on if someone's verticals, this, how likely that is that to translate to being a good NFL player. If somebody's, if somebody can bench this, how much does that matter? Right. They've got kind of a chart that kind of spells out the probabilities for each of these metrics here. You're kind of going in blind but like the social scientist in me is like, okay, so you're basically taking 30 people. It's not randomized. It's a very small sample. You don't really know what the baseline is. You don't really have data from other countries to say, for instance, what John Morris's bench press or whatever is. I think the fitness stuff, while it's important to curling, right? I think it really got overplayed in 2014. That, that quite often what happens in all sports is people look at what the winners did differently and then copy that. And that's kind of wise. but it can kind of almost swing too far one way. And I think, you know, the last cycle was everyone went fitness mad. Everyone's doing CrossFit. Everyone's trying to get their deadlift and their, you know, snatch up, you know, and kind of boast on Instagram about how much they can lift and do all the reps. But at the end of the day, curling's a skill sport. And it's like, how, how good are you of a shooter under pressure? Right. That's the thing that kind of really matters the most. And, you know, Schuster's probably, this, you know, the best shooter of his generation in U.S. curling, right? Mm-hmm. And so in a certain sense, it's like, fine. It's like, there's a lot of, the best analogy is probably baseball, right? There's a lot of guys who are fantastic athletes, but, you know, the greatest baseball player of all time may have been a fantastic athlete, but was not all that fit, right? Like Babe Ruth's, <laughs> Babe Ruth's yeah. notoriously fat, but also, you know, I'd say probably still would be considered the greatest baseball player of all time, but certainly was up until, up until the 90s, right? Yeah, and then you look. You have on the on the pitching side, you have guys like Billy Wagner who do not look like they should be able to throw a hundred miles an hour. Who can throw a hundred miles an hour? Yeah, and you know, curling's the same same way, right? They, as long as you have the flexibility and can throw accurately, and you've got good touch, that's the thing that matters the most. Sure, like sweeping matters, right? Being like world class sweeping can drag a rock an extra four to five feet compared to like club sweeping. No doubt there, right? So that increases your miss margin by four mm-hmm. to five feet. That's that's a fantastic advantage of margin of error. But if you were throwing where your kind of range of miss, if you will, is 20 feet when you're going for a draw, the best sweeper in the world isn't going to save you, right? Um, and if you're like a world-class shooter where you know you're always going to cover the lid, you're always going to be kind of in play, right? Like the, the classics, Guy Hemmings, who's, you know... Yep. It's the two Briar finals, and that guy could draw. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, if he needed the button, he could draw the button, right? And he just, 
he had the button in the back of his pocket always. And if you're like, and he, he by his own admission, he has a very ugly delivery. Yeah. Picked up curling in his 20s. But he had a practice ethic like you wouldn't believe. Like he would just go to the club every day and just throw 100 stones every day and just willed himself into being a good curler. And at the end of the day, that's the, the primary thing is shot making. And it's fine to test for mobility and fitness and kind of intelligence and psychology and all this other stuff. But it is the shot making, right? And so if you're not selecting on that first and foremost, it's, you know, it's the same thing like in, you know, in any sport, like the primary skill is the, the primary thing you want to select for. The other stuff may matter, but, you know, if I went to the gym and just grabbed the four most unfit guys and, and tried to turn them into like Team England, it wouldn't work next year, right? So the 2014-2015 season is the first uh, with this new high-performance f- format, and the season starts with John Schuster, Tyler George, Matt Hamilton, and Trevor Host playing lead. Eventually, John Landsteiner would join the team for the national, which would be Schuster's first appearance in a GSOC event since the 2010 Canadian Open, and Trevor Host kind of becomes Pete Best here. Um, The 2014-2015 season, as we said, Schuster qualified for the national after he made playoffs at the Stu Cells Oakville and Stu Cells Toronto. Uh, at the Canadian Open, he loses to Heath McCormick, and that would be his only loss to a high-performance program team all season. Uh, in February of 2015, he goes 10-1 with a loss to Team Pustovar en route to winning U.S. Nationals, uh, during which he went 5-0 and against high-performance program teams. On April 3rd, he finishes 5th at Worlds after losing a tiebreaker against Akukausta and Finland. He finishes the season 21st in the Order of Merit, the best by an American team, with Heath McCormick finishing 24th and Craig Brown finishing 25th. On May 22nd of 2015, Schuster's entire team gets accepted into the High Performance Program. The US, uh, USA Curling announces the High Performance Program has been expanded to seven teams, adding an extra men's team for season 2015-2016. With three men's teams finishing the season in the top 25 on the World Curling Tour Order of Merit, this decision was a logical step. However, just just months later, the goalposts would be moved again for Schuster. On August 21st, 2015, USA Curling announces the new format for the Olympic Curling Trials for the PyeongChang Games. It says the field will be a minimum of three teams and a maximum of five teams uh, each for men and women. The final procedures are currently being drafted in consultation with the U.S. Olympic Committee and still are to be finalized. The draft includes the following proposals on how teams can qualify for the trials. One team can qualify for the trials by placing in the top five at the 2017 World Championships. Or you can qualify for the trials by finishing in the top 15 on the World Curling Tour Order of Merit uh, at the end of the 2016-2017 season. So, no matter what Schuster does in 2015-2016, he's not going to qualify for the trials. All that really seems to matter is that 2016-2017 season. 
in 2015-2016. Team Schuster makes the semifinal at the Grand Slam of Curling's Tour Challenge. They go undefeated at the Sarnia Oil Heritage Classic. Uh, in November, they go 0-4 at the National. In November, 20, uh, in November, they also go undefeated at the Coors Light Cash Spiel in Duluth. In December, they go 1-3 at the Canadian Open. Uh, later in December, they go undefeated at Krill Masabi. So a, a very up and down season for Team Schuster. Um, on February 13th, he loses in the final of U.S. Nationals to Brady Clark. However, due to the new world selection criteria that USA Curling has selected, he does go and represent the U.S. at Worlds. So now representing the U.S. at Worlds, not as the national champion, he goes and wins bronze. On April 10th, he beats uh, Team Morizumi and Japan to win the bronze medal. Uh, he finishes 13th in the order of merit with Craig Brown finishing 22nd and Pete Finson finishing 66th. Brady Clark, by the way, was 33rd. So an excellent season, but despite his bronze medal, despite finishing 13th in order of merit, he is still not yet qualified for the Olympics. We go to the 2016-2017 season. Again, kind of an up and down season for Team Schuster. They qualified for the Masters, the Tour Challenge, and the National in the Grand Slam of Curling, but went a combined 2-11 and 11 in those events. He lost in the final of the Coors Light Cash Spiel to Heath McCormick. He lost his first game of Curling Night in America to Lou Rouet uh, on December 1st. He lost in the final of Curl Masabi to Heath McCormick. He made the quarterfinal of the Canadian Open in January, beating Reed Carruthers, Brendan Botcher, and Charlie Thomas on the way there. He then... Going into U.S. Nationals, did not qualify at the Golden Wrench Classic in Arizona with another loss to Heath McCormick. So he enters U.S. Nationals 0-3 against McCormick and then proceeds to go undefeated in Everett, including four one-point victories. So he is Team USA at Worlds, this time earning it by winning U.S. Nationals. There he knows he needs a top five finish at Worlds to automatically qualify for the U.S. Olympic trials. Once again, it's a slow start for Team USA, and they lose to Peter DeCruz, David Murdoch, and Brad Gushu to start two and three. He then ran the table the rest of the way, including a win over Nicholas Adine in the last game of the round robin to clinch a spot in the playoffs, which of course guaranteed him a shot at the U.S. Olympic trials. He wound up finishing fourth after two more losses to Peter DeCruz. So at the end of 2016-2017, he got his top five finish. He also finished 13th in order of merit, uh, the best of any U.S. team. So there was no drama surrounding Schuster's spot at the Olympic trials Despite all the goalpost moving, he'd assured himself of a place in Omaha. In fact, his was the only team to meet the high-performance program's criteria for automatic selection. The period where Derek Brown gets the bad rep is the the goalpost moving, as you kind of call it, right? And the the kind of I, I read it more as someone kind of constantly tinkering with the process because they're not quite 
confident in what the process should be. And at least how it's at least how it was run at that point in time, it was not as democratic as say like Curl Canada. Like Curl Canada when they when they change CTRS points or all these other things, they certainly include the athletes a lot more in the selection criteria. It was a little bit more top down uh, in USA curling. And I a lot of um, not just John Schuster, I know a lot of the the kind of elite athletes at different points in time would would complain about um, the process not really taking an athlete input. I again the the upside is, and if you you're just we're just looking here in a period of seven years, it's gone from US teams not being eligible to play in slams, not ranking very high on the order of merit, to now four teams kind of in the top 50, which by that point in time was a pretty significant accomplishment, right? That I, I think the, the charitable way of reading what Derek Brown and USA Curling was trying to do is really try to push the high the elite teams to go out on tour, play against strong teams under the belief that building a resume over the course of the season is a better indicator of the strength of a team than how they show up at a national championship, right? And so in a certain sense, that's accomplished. It seems like Schuster was kind of the target for it. I'm not sure how much of it was explicitly, we don't want John Schuster versus how much of it's we want national teams that are kind of qualifying and playing in an order of merit events and qualifying for slams. Um, yeah. So that that's, he certainly kind of got caught in the middle of that, whether or not it's intentional or not. I'm not, I'm not sure. So we go to the Olympic trials in Omaha. This time Schuster is definitely the favorite. Unlike the previous two Olympic trials, he again wins the double round Robin with a six and two record. And this time he will face McCormick in a best of three for the right to be team USA. After losing game one, he forces a decisive third game by scoring an emphatic four in the ninth end in game two. Up one with Hammer in the 10th end of game three, he has to play a hit against two. He nearly rolls out, but hangs on with about an inch to spare to secure a spot in his fourth Olympics. We get into 2018. Between the trials and the games, Schuster competes in three spiels, including the Canadian Open, which is the triple knockout format GSOC event. He fails to qualify, but does knock off Nicholas Adin and Kim Chang-min in the process. In contrast with the 2014 or really even the 2010 Olympics, Schuster goes into Pyeongchang having played the previous uh, three world championships where he finished fifth after losing a tiebreaker, third, and fourth. He had also played in 14 GSOC events between the Sochi Games and the Pyeongchang Games, contrasted with the zero that he played in between Vancouver and Sochi. John Landsteiner told the Minneapolis Star Star Tribune about Schuster, he's more focused. He's found a way to control his emotions more, and he's just more mature as a skip. It's been fun to see. There's a, there's a really interesting moment in the 2017 uh, bronze medal game where uh, maybe we should go back and look at it, try to find the clip. But I, I just remember it as like, John, basically, I'm feeling it. I'm going to play this shot. And uh, Matt being right after the shot's missed, like, why the hell did we try that shot? Like, and that that moment to me was kind of interesting because it's clearly one of the big things is the he, like John really rides that razor edge when it comes to shot selection. 
right? He's kind of, I mean, the, probably the best analogy is he's a bit like Brett Favre, right? Where um, <laughs> <laughs> when it's going great, and, it, you know, Brett Favre was a, a Vikings quarterback for two seasons. So I, we got a bit of the Brett Favre experience, right? When it's going great and it works, you're like, holy crap, he's amazing. But when it blows up, you're like, why? Why'd you do that? Why'd you throw that pick against New Orleans, Brett Favre? <laughs> um, so, uh, and it's, it's it's a similar kind of thing. And I think the thing that, that matured over that process, over that, that quad, was he got better at his shot selection and, and learned that kind of, that sense of timing that a high-level skip has of when to play the high-risk, high-reward shot and when to kind of dial it back a bit and play the safe shot and manage the scoreboard a bit better, right? And he, he got a lot better at that over that quad. And I, I still remember that game. And I think... There's even a jump from 2017 fourth place Worlds to Olympic John Schuster that we're going to get to in a second. So that brings us to the 2018 Games. For the first time at the Olympics, Schuster starts 1-0 after handling the host South Korea 11-7. The Americans were able to build ins and capitalize with Last Rock, putting crooked numbers on the board the first four times they had Hammer, including a pair of threes. That momentum did not carry into Game 2 against Joel Retornas and Italy, however. The U.S. gave up a five-ender in the third and remarkably tied the game after five and again after nine. However, Retornas and fourth Amos Mosaner converted with hammer and ten to drop the U.S. to one and one. That Jekyll and Hyde routine continued in the Americans' two games on Friday, February 16th. Against Sweden in the morning, they gave up four in the first and never recovered, losing 10-4. to That night against Denmark, Schuster and company scored two with Hammer in the first and stole a pair of points in two and again in four on their way to winning 9-5. to after a rare day off on Saturday, February 17th, the U.S. would play two more games on the 18th with their record even at 2-2. Two and two. That Sunday was a bad day. In the morning session, Schuster struggled, Japan controlled from the get-go, and the U.S. lost 8-2. That night against Norway, the U.S. led 4-3 at the break, but gave up five unanswered points coming out of it and lost 8-5. Just like that, the U.S. was now 2-4. It not only needed to win out, but it needed help to get into the medal round. Schuster had the lowest shooting percentage among skips and, and waiting for them in the next men's draw on the afternoon of Monday, February 19th, was Kevin Cooey and his all-star Canadian cast that had basically been assembled for the specific purpose of winning this curling tournament. This wasn't a Canadian team that was on a roll and was going to look past the Americans. They were coming into this game on their own two-game losing streak, having lost to Sweden and Switzerland. As if Cooey and his team weren't dangerous enough, they were backed into a corner and were trying to ensure their own spot in the playoffs. And it wasn't like Schuster had a history of success against Cooey unlike with Nicholas Adin, uh, when his team beat Cooey at the GSOC Tour Challenge in September, it snapped an eight-game losing streak against him that stretched back to 2009, according to Curling Zone. Way back in episode six of this show, uh, we talked about kind of the sociology around 
groups of people as it related to curling teams. And I think now's a good time to talk about what made this team different. A lot of times it's hard to speak highly of one group without sounding like you're disparaging another. And that's the last thing um, that I want to do here is make it sound like I'm speaking poorly of Jeff Isaacson, Jared Zezel, Jason Smith, John Bitten, or any other member of Team USA's men's curling teams prior to Pyeongchang. All of them are held in high regard in U.S. curling circles. And I don't think you'd be able to find anyone who has anything bad to say about any of them. Isaacson now manages the highly successful Chaska Curling Center. Smith now works with the All-Pro Curling Team uh, with Jared Allen and Michael Ruse. And Benton has been a coach for uh, USA Curling and is involved with the Four Seasons Curling Club. But this team that Schuster assembled for Pyeongchang, I think, had something that just made them different. And it goes beyond the motivation that was provided uh, to them after that first high performance combine. Um, as we talked about during our creating curling teams with science episode, th there's this notion in sociology where groups will divide into social roles that consist of the leader, the lieutenant, the joker, and the nerd. There's this guy, Howard Bloom, who was a former PR guy for people like Michael Jackson, Kiss, ACDC, and Bette Midler, like a very unique cross-section of people. Uh, and he went on to study group behavior, and he's a big proponent of, of this concept. The story goes that when groups of summer campers were separated, um, even when a group of leaders was put together, they all fell into this pattern there where one took control, one became the lieutenant, one became the Joker, and one former alpha even became the group's nerd. Um, the same thing was kind of found when they did a, uh, a separate study of Chicago gangs in the 1920s. Um, and from an outsider's perspective, it looks like Team Schuster fell into these roles very naturally on the ice. Schuster, the group's leader, George, the go-between for Schuster in the team's front end, uh, who was capable of knowing when he needed to tap into Matt Hamilton's inner desire to be the hero. Hamilton, the guy who kept it light, and Landsteiner, the, the soft-spoken, brilliant setter of the table. Um, this isn't really about what was wrong with the previous versions of Team Schuster, but really what was just so right about this one. This group, which was a blend of just the right type of personalities, with the motivation uh, from previous failures and rejections, they now entered a series of must-win games beginning with this one against their North American rivals. And the result really, Jonathan, was just a remarkable curling game where a lot of U.S. games leading up to this had line scores that really looked like a fever dream. This one was just a tight back-and-forth game the game was tied in nine when Schuster made a delicate tap around a center guard to get his two. The U.S. Uh, managed to have Hammer going into the extra end uh, against Canada after Cooey answered with his own deuce in 10. In that extra end, Tyler George really came through for, for his skip. He moved Canada's staggered center, center guards enough to give Schuster an easier shot with his last. It wasn't a gimme. And Schuster had to make a board weight takeout to remove a Canada rock in the forefoot. 
And as is just always the case with this team, uh, they made it a little tougher than it had to be. Uh, Schuster really flirted with that guard, but it caught the Canada Rock flush, avoided the jam, and gave the U.S. its biggest Olympic win since that bronze medal game in 2006. When Schuster made that shot, he gives a big high leg leg kick and a fist pump uh, as Canada's Yellow Rock exited the house. This game took place at 1 a.m. Eastern time and ended about 4 a.m. Eastern time. I woke up to go to work that morning, and the first thing I saw was an interview that Schuster did with NBC Sports's Trini Kuznarek, and I really wasn't prepared for this interview. Uh, you knew something was up because as Kuznarek was setting up the interview, Tyler George was standing next to Schuster, kind of staring off into the distance. Usually for these type of mixed zone interviews, you just have one player there, but Schuster's eyes looked a little red and it kind of matched the color of that classic Team USA dad hat that he wore throughout the tournament. Um, Jonathan, I almost pulled this audio, but the last thing I wanted was for us to spend all this time on this episode and then get hit with an intellectual property claim from NBC Universal. Kuznarek asked how Schuster was able to play so well against Canada coming off the game against Norway. And John said, it's one of those things this morning I woke up and happened to have a Dan Jansen thing come up. And then he had to stop to compose himself. Kuznarek asked where the emotion was coming from. And as Schuster choked away tears, he said, the Olympics have been so tough for me. And I saw that from Dan. This isn't my story. My story isn't what's been happening so far. And again, he had to stop to compose himself. Kuznarek turned to Tyler George and asked, Tyler, when you see a teammate like this get so emotional, how do you support him? And how do you support him here and on the ice? And Tyler George said, it's good emotions, you know? I mean, John's been through a lot over the last few Olympics. It's no secret. There's a reason why we play with him. And there's a reason why we stick with him. And it's because what we saw today is what we know he is. To come out when everything's going against you, against the best in the world, and play the way that he did and the way we did today, there's no better testament to someone's character than that. He later said, John's not emotional for himself. He's emotional because he wants to do this so badly for us and for everyone that loves him. And we do. It just makes me really happy to see him emotional for the right reasons. I was not ready to see that when I woke up to get ready for work that morning. But Jonathan, I was also ready to run through a damned brick wall. Yeah, I mean, that is probably, I remember seeing it too at the time, and it's damn, it gives you goosebumps to see. Like, you can see the, the emotion, you can see the, the bond that team has, you can see what that moment meant for Schuster. It, it, that's the moment that kind of took the monkey off his back, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I was ready to run through a brick wall, and obviously the entire U.S. team was too. They dropped a pair of threes on Switzerland the next day. Um and on Wednesday, they had a three and four ender against Great Britain to win 10 to four. They'd done it. They'd won out to get to five and four, which put them in a three way tie for third behind Sweden and Canada. Remarkably, the other two teams in that tie were Switzerland and Great Britain, which means it was the US that was in third and Switzerland and Great Britain who had to play a tiebreaker for fourth. The U.S. was guaranteed a playoff spot and guaranteed a chance to at least play for a medal. 
on Thursday night, it would be the U.S. meeting Canada again, this time in the Olympic semifinal. The gold medal game in women's hockey took place at 1.10 p.m. local time in South Korea um, on that Thursday in Pyeongchang, about a half mile from the Ganyang Curling Center. There, the U.S. knocked off Canada in a shootout. As the U.S. took their initial slides at 8 p.m. local and 7 a.m. Eastern, they were greeted with the same USA cheers that had rang out in jubilation just hours before. From the beginning, Team USA played well, but where Kevin Cooey typically takes advantage of any opening he has presented, we got some indication in the second end that he might not be completely on his game. Um, he was heavy on a draw to the full four that would have given him two. The teams then proceeded to trade singles, and the U.S. went into the fifth in break, tied at two. The key to this game came in the eighth end after blanks in six and seven. This was where Cooey was likely looking for his deuce to take a commanding lead and then likely have Hammer in ten. Midway through the thing, through the end, things were looking good for Cooey. The Canadians were sitting two, partially behind a very long American center guard, but two downweight takeout shots by Tyler George really flipped the script in this end and left the U.S. sitting two. After Mark Kennedy barely missed a double, uh, but kept shot stone. Schuster had the choice between a hit and long roll to the center or a draw. He chose the draw and sat shot stone in the back of the forefoot on the center line. Cooey chose to follow it with his first, but his outturn curled too much and caught a good piece of the Canadian stone that was at the top of the 12. Schuster then hit that rock and rolled to the center. The U.S. sat one and two at the top and at the back of the forefoot behind a long guard. Matt Hamilton was fired up, but Schuster stayed as stoic as he could as they awaited Hammer from Cooey. Now Cooey was drawing for one. Um, as he was releasing his shot, the commenters on the WCF feed, uh, Ed Lukowicz and Sandra Rolvag, noticed that this was a line that was a little further out than previous shots coming this way and that it could be a little slower. They were right. The Canadian front end of Ben Hebert and Brent Lang started sweeping Cooey's shot right out of his hand. Before the hog line, Hebert said that he thought the stone would keep sliding, and a little bit after the hog line, they realized that Cooey's shot wasn't going to make it. They kicked the stone away, and the U.S. put a steal of two on the board. Now it was the U.S. up two and looking at having Hammer and in 10. After the game, Cooey would tell the Canadian press that he thought his team controlled the game right up until that shot. Going into Schuster's first shot in nine, the sheet was free of guards, and Canada had one rock sitting in front of two U.S. rocks with a space not much bigger than a curling stone between them. Schuster chose to hit the Canadian rock, knowing he would likely lose his shooter as well as one of his own rocks in the house. You could tell this was in the days of the four rock free guard zone because during Schuster's discussion with Tyler George, George suggested he would rather give up two to Canada than blank the end. Uh, and his suggestion was immediately shot down by Schuster. 
Schuster's shot took the Canadian rock and one of his own off the board and left one U.S. rock in the house. Cooey took it out and rolled to the back button, and immediately Tyler George called for Schuster to freeze on top of it. Apparently, George had won his argument with Schuster during Cooey's first shot. This was an interesting call. Uh, an absolute perfect freeze on top of Canada's rock would, at the very worst, get a blank out of the end and possibly a steal. A good enough freeze would likely be blasted out for a score of one for Canada, but it was very easy for Schuster to leave his rock in a position that Cooey could still remove and score two points and tie the game. But in any scenario, the U.S. is still going to be heavily favored to win the game. Schuster's shot wasn't perfect, and Cooey definitely had a chance to get his two after Schuster bumped Canada's rock back. However, Cooey was again just a little bit off. His shot was too heavy. It caught the U.S. rock too thin, uh, and his shooter rolled away. They scored only one, and Schuster went into the 10th end with the lead and the hammer in his back pocket. Four years after failing to make that tick against Russia in Sochi, John Landsteiner made two really good ones to open up the middle of the sheet after Ben Hebert's two center guards. With his first, Schuster looked at peeling out a Canada rock that was at the top of the house, but he chose to throw a little bit less weight and try to roll to the side of the house to possibly sit shot rock. He did exactly that uh, and told his front end, it's the Olympics, let's do this. <laughs> Cooey hit Schuster's rock a little thinner than he would like and rolled to the button. Schuster now had an open hit and stick to win. As Schuster's shot entered the house, Hamilton knew it was made and let out a yeah, baby. Schuster, meanwhile, continued to stay as stoic as he could. After shaking hands with, Can uh, with Team Canada and as USA chance again cascaded down, he told his celebrating teammates, I want gold. Again, I want gold. Then finally, I think he kind of let the moment take control. He took a huge breath and finally cracked just this enormous smile and acknowledged the cheering fans. Uh, the U.S., facing another early elimination just days before, had now guaranteed itself a medal. After the game, Schuster told the New York Times that the U.S. women's hockey team's triumph had given their team a little bit of inspiration coming into the game. Uh, Tyler George told the Times, uh, I think it was heroic. The guys, one through four, just played the game of their lives when it mattered most. That's what you dream about doing. Hamilton uh, told the Times that the team would, in fact, do a little bit of celebrating and said, I think it's healthy to celebrate just a little bit. I might go back to the village and have a McFlurry. <laughs> On the Canadian side, Mark Kennedy told the Canadian press, I'm not disappointed in our effort. I'm not disappointed in the guys. I thought we played our asses off all week to get in the semifinal. We ran into a hot skip. It's just the way it goes. Yeah, I remember watching that. That game was in the morning here, so I remember watching that game. And it, it really was that, well, that end uh, was a turning point. Canada called a timeout in that end fairly early. I think either on uh, Lyons last or Kennedy's first. And you could kind of sense that Canada's sense was they'd gotten a little bit messier than they wanted, right? They wanted, mm -hmm. they clearly were playing for their deuce in eight to try to get control of the game. But uh, the setup 
had start had stopped looking good, but they decided to go all in and kind of keep chasing. And uh, yeah, it kind of fell apart pretty quickly on the last four shots there. And that happened a lot throughout this whole run um, after the U.S. started two and four. Um, they were able to get houses a lot messier, especially when they didn't have hammer. Uh, and it really forced some difficult shots out of the opposing skips. Yeah. And I think that, again, that's kind of Schuster's style. He likes an aggressive style of play. And uh, I think in an Olympics, right, the pressure's up even for the big boys, right? So I think that, that the fact that Schuster had played such an aggressive style his whole career probably paid off in these kind of closing round games and the medal round games, right? That he was comfortable in that situation. Not that Cooey or Dean aren't, obviously, but um, I think their their preference in both cases would be to try to to use the junk to get control, but Cooey also tends to have a pretty quick bailout too, right? Like he can, he's quite happy to blank end after end and wait for his chance. Whereas I think Schuster, Schuster tends to just go all out uh, every end. It's kind of slightly, slightly more aggressive, I'd say. And so I think here it, it, it kind of finally paid off at the right moment for them. Going into the gold medal game, the Americans were the ones with nothing to lose. They'd overcome their two and four record. They'd beaten Canada twice. They'd already secured a medal at the end of the day, the Olympics, which were looking to be a failure could already be considered a rousing success. Um, Tyler George told the CBC's Devin Hero after the semifinal victory, I'm happy for the team, I'm happy for myself, but more than anything, I'm happy for all the curlers in the United States. This is the game we always talk about, but people never watch. And even though the gold medal game against Sweden was going to start at 2.30 a.m. Eastern, there were going to be plenty of curlers and non-curlers alike tuning in to watch this game. Coming into the Olympics, Schuster had a three-game winning streak against Nicholas Adin that was broken during the round robin. When it, while Adin had a better record against Schuster in Grand Slams, um, it was even in 10 end games. Coming into the gold medal game, including the round robin game, Schuster was 3-3 three and three against Adin in the Olympics and in World Championships. The team had a reason to be relaxed and confident coming into this game, uh, but none of that seemed to matter as the game got underway. Edine, starting with Hammer, blanked the first end and got his deuce in two. On paper, the stats will tell you that he had extremely good odds of winning. At this point, we should probably, I mean, you've kind of touched on it, Jonathan, but now's a good point to kind of talk about the changes that could be noticed in Schuster himself between the Vancouver games and the Pyeongchang games in Vancouver. You know, you go back and watch those and he, when, when things got down, he seemed just to be miserable and even miserable to be around, at least on the ice. Uh, when things went wrong, he would get kind of snippy with his teammates on his, on the mic. You could hear him tell a sweeper that the thrower just had to be better if a shot was, was half made or, or the result was worse. Um, it improved in Sochi. Between Vancouver and Sochi, uh, Schuster got married to his wife, Sarah. They had their first son, Luke. And Schuster would tell the story about how, as a stay-at-home dad leading up to Sochi, uh, whenever Luke was due for a nap, he would drive to the curling club and throw rocks while Luke swept. The longer that Luke slept, the more practice uh, Schuster could throw. Between Sochi and Pyeongchang, the Schusters welcomed their second son, Logan. 
Maybe it was the adversity that he'd faced the previous two games. Maybe it was the wisdom of age. Maybe it was just the personal grounding that family can bring. But Schuster just seemed different during the tournament in South Korea. And more so than anything, he just seemed calmer. He was calmer with his teammates. He was calmer when things weren't going well. He just seemed more at ease and better prepared to deal with whatever was thrown his way. And in the third end, the U.S. tied the game by getting a deuce of its own. The fourth end is when the game really changed. The U.S. was able to get a house that favored them with several rocks in play going into Adin's first shot. And on his first, uh, Adin was looking at a U.S. counter that was sitting uh, on top of one of his own. He wanted to play a heavy draw to kind of unlock things uh, so that he would have a chance to remove the U.S. rock with his last in score two, possibly more. Instead, Adin's first overcurled, glanced off a rock at the top of the forefoot and rolled away helplessly. Schuster's next shot was a touch heavy and didn't curl, and it left Adin a possible double takeout for two. Both of the WCF commentators for this game, Hans Fraunlaub and Sander Rolvag, uh, were basically putting two on the board for Sweden uh, as Adin delivered his last uh, and they said it was pretty straightforward and fairly easy for someone of Adin's caliber. However, Adin's rock ran straighter this time. The U.S. rock jammed in the back, and after a measure, it was determined the U.S. had, in fact, stolen a point to take the lead. In the fifth, the U.S. once again had, a ha- had the house looking the way they liked it. Not only were there a lot of rocks in play, but going into stip- skip stones, the U.S. was sitting three. This time, Edine got his team out of trouble by drawing to the side of the button with his first and then drew in again after Schuster's last draw was thrown through the house. Sweden had their two uh, and took the lead going into the break. And the thinking was, you know, after that, that draw by Schuster that went through the house, you go into the fifth end break and you're thinking, is this where... The U.S. is finally going to break down. Is this where the mistakes are going to finally pile up and that we're going to see this run end? Uh, And the answer in the sixth was no. Uh, Edine missed a run back with his first and Schuster was able to convert for his own deuce in six to take the lead. In the seventh, the U.S. got another error out of Edine as he flashed a double attempt that would have possibly set Sweden up for three. However, Edine did make a double tap to get one with his last and tie the game. Then the eighth end happened. Jonathan, it's the most famous end in American curling, uh, and it culminated with the most famous shot in American curling. Again, it was a messy house going into Skip Stones. With his first, Edine was facing three American counters, and his draw didn't curl enough. Schuster looked to make a play on it and told Tyler George he wanted to leave Adine a hit and roll with his last because if Adine missed, it would be the game. And that's exactly what happened. Sweden called timeout and elected to play a hit and roll on one of the U.S. rocks with the goal of getting to the button behind cover. However, Adine hit the U.S. rock almost on the nose and left it out in the open. It was very similar to the shot that Adine missed in the fourth end. Uh, And Schuster now had an open double, not for two, but for five. After all the misses, all the pain, 
all the doubt from inside and outside of U.S. curling, of the U.S. curling community, John Schuster finally delivered. He made the double per- perfectly, and as Jason Knapp of NBC Sports cried out five on the board for Team USA, Schuster looked like he was staring to the house just dumbfounded. He had this goofy, open-mouthed, half-smile on his face as he made his way down the ice and gave Tyler George a high five because the game was over. The five, the five that U.S. put up to go up 10-5 to five was pretty much the end of the game. Edine wound up conceding in 10 after a spinorama shot, and Team USA celebrated. Arm in arm, they let the cheers of USA, USA rain down on them. Matt Hamilton told John Schuster, you just won the effing gold medal. <laughs> this was kind of a, a fitting moment, Jonathan. There, there were hugs all around, obviously, after the game, and really fittingly, just a big one between Schuster and Derek Brown. You know, this was the guy that shook up the way the U.S. decided its Olympic team and in, in just based off of things that were put into USA curling, it just seemed like he was someone who wanted anyone but John Schuster in a Team USA uniform, at least from the outside looking in. But to see those two just give each other a huge hug after the game just seemed like kind of a perfect end to the eight years between Vancouver and this moment where those two, the stories of John Schuster and Derek Brown were, were very intertwined. Um, it was the greatest moment in us curling history. And the moment meant even more because of every moment that had come in those previous eight years. I don't think it would have meant nearly as much if it had been anyone but Schuster winning this gold medal this was his story. It always was. And we just didn't know it until he made that double for five. I had to watch the, I, I was able to watch the semifinal on TV, but um, I was actually in a restaurant as the final was going on. Cause we had to have breakfast cause we had to go play that day. And I was watching it on the U S on the uh, Olympic, uh, like watching the little screen where it updates with the rock positions on the Olympic app, which is not a great way <laughs> to watch it. And I didn't, I didn't believe the five on my phone. I thought the phone had made a mistake because it didn't post the five. It just went, there's five stones. I'm like, there's five stones there. And then, then it sure enough flashed the five. And I was texting you and you were very drunk. I was. <laughs> so it was about, yeah, it was, it was about um, between 4.30 and 5 a.m. Eastern. And I was at, uh, we went to my friend Stephen's house in D.C. because... So I'll, I'll admit, Jonathan, I did not think the U.S. would be in this game. I thought at, at best they would be in the, the bronze medal game. So I had made this. This happened on a Friday night into Saturday morning. And I had made plans that Saturday to go up to D.C. Uh, a friend of my a friend of ours uh, went to Providence College. And on Saturday, we were going to go see the noon game between Providence and Georgetown there in D.C. And it just so happened that my Buffalo Sabres were going to be playing the Capitals that night. So I was going to do uh, the doubleheader. I was going to go see Providence play Georgetown at noon and I was going to see the Sabres play the Capitals at seven there in DC. And I did not know that I would be uh, pulling an all nighter, (laughs) which I did. And thankfully uh, my, my friend Steven uh, does not buy cheap bourbon. Uh, So no, I was not 
Uh, I was I was very drunk when when Schuster made that double for five at whatever time it was in the morning. <laughs> it must have been must have been four or five. So it was like about nine in the UK. Yeah. So yeah, it would have been yeah. It was between four thirty and five a.m. I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was yeah. It was a big moment, right? So so we look at what just in terms of numbers, the impact that this had on USA curling. And as we said, going into Vancouver, you were looking at 16,000 curlers in the US in over 140 clubs. The media guide going into the 2018 game said there were 21,000 USA curlers and 170 clubs. Two years later, so you get the Schuster effect and then a little bit more time for people to, to keep going to learn to curls and joining. Um, the 2019-20 media guide said there are approximately 26,000 curlers and 188 clubs in the U.S. So in basically 18 months after this moment, it grew by another 5,000. Yeah. And it. I think the other thing, and this is the, the second part of this, is... So in 2006, there's probably curling clubs in about 15 states in the U.S. And most were dedicated facilities, most in kind of Northeast, Upper Midwest, and, and basically Seattle on the West Coast. A few arena clubs. Um, the 2002 Olympics is what gets Dallas-Fort Worth going. But it's really the 2006 Olympics where there's big growth there. 2010s when Oklahoma gets going and Tulsa got started a year later. And the arena boom really happened 2006-2010. The big boom that's happening now is all of these dedicated facilities coming Mm -hmm. online, right? So it sounds like San Francisco and Los Angeles are both going to have dedicated facilities um, within a year. So we're looking at Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. Triangle, Charlotte. Yeah. And so this is the the next thing, right? Is that while arena clubs are great and they kind of help get the sport going in a local community, you you realize pretty quickly you're limited in terms of development, in terms of membership capacity, in terms of ice time. Uh, The real boom coming out of the Schuster effect is actually going to be the growth in dedicated curling facilities. And I think that that's where you're going to see a jump, I think. And you can mock my words, but from like 26,000 to 50,000 or 100,000, that once you have a four-sheeter, that four-sheeter can handle 500 curlers, no problem. Whereas an arena club's really stuck in the, the 50 to 100 member range. We're probably a ways away from the eventual movie that will be made about John Schuster's journey to becoming an Olympic champion. Um, there are probably a few reasons why we haven't heard news about one already. Um, and while the script writes itself uh one thing that the classic disney sports movie always needs is a villain um think about the opposing bobsled teams in cool runnings or or carter high school in friday night lights in those cases sometimes you have to dramatize and make a villain out of an entity that really wasn't the villain when everything went down because i mean here's the thing how would the curling world react if they tried to make Idine or Cooey the villain. After all, these guys were friends with all the guys on Team Schuster. No one, no one wants to see them bring the kid who played Gunner Stall and Mighty Ducks 2 out to play Idine 
And I, I think it would be pretty cringeworthy if they made someone as mild manner, mannered as the coup dog, if they turned him into Shooter McGavin. Um, so you need a villain for the Disney version of this. And it's like, so who's going to be the villain in the Disney version of the John Schuster story? Um, I think Benny Hebes would be pretty funny. And I can almost see him taking some perverse joy out of being made into a Disney villain. Um, yeah, I can see him cackling. But <laughs> but but really, I think that we have our Disney villain. And if you're, you're going to make one person in this story, the classic movie trope villain, it's it's got to be Derek Brown. He's the guy that ran the high performance program in the lead to the Sochi games. He's the guy who's quote, John Schuster can recite by heart. No, he's, he's your villain. And I can already see like the guy who played little finger saying something like we invented the sport, John Schuster, and you bloody well don't belong in this sport in just a horrible Scottish accent. <laughs> and it, it, and it gives you the nice ending with, the Brown and Schuster hug at the end. So you can still have Derek Brown as the villain and have the happy ending in that case as well. Yeah. Why not? I mean, I think that's, I mean, the story's kind of been written. I don't know who knows if there's enough market for a second curling movie. Uh, although <laughs> it certainly would be, po- it, it would, it would be possible to, to top um, men with brooms. I think men with brooms is a bit jokey. But I think the the Game of Stones guys actually did a full, very thorough uh, run through of that last summer. So, um, yeah, it'd be good. It would be good if it was a well done movie. My my fear is actually it will be a Disney movie. You know, they use. I mean, come on, they made, Miracle was really good. They can do. The yeah, Miracle good. is good. Miracle is good. If they make it more like Miracle and less like Cool Runnings, then it's gonna mean it. Uh, I don't think Disney does awful sports movies like that. Like even the I, I even the rugby was good. Be, the rugby one was good. I think I even the, I even even the rookie was good. Yeah. Oh, the rookie. I thought you were talking about like uh, what was the one with Nelson Mandela? Oh, Invictus. And, uh, that yeah, that was good. Invictus. That was good. That was good. I kind of like. Uh, I like the the grittier ones. Yeah. I don't like the sappy. Like I hope there's not a sports montage. God, I hate sports news and sports montage. They're, they're, I'm, I'm sorry, but there's going to be a sports <laughs> montage. I have really... No! I, I, I have really bad news for you, Jonathan. There's going to be a sports montage. No. I want like... Uh, I'd like Friday Night Lights. Like that kind of style. Wasn't there a montage Gritty. in Friday Night Lights? In the movie? Yeah. I mean, there may have been a montage, but it's like not like... It's not the standard Rocky, do the sports massage, get good. <laughs> I don't want that cliche. No, I've got I've got opinions on this. I think it'll be good. Anyway, uh, no, that that would suck. Yeah. I want it more <laughs> prestige. I want it like HBO. Oh uh, man, <laughs> I don't want I don't want crappy cheesy Disney sports montage, whatever. No. See, I don't. I don't mind the Disney sports movies. I like. I think Miracles, great. I think most of them are are really good, and I I think it would be. I think it would be very well done. All right. Well, there you go. You'll probably get the consulting gig when Dis- if Disney wants to call. <laughs> I mean, that would 
that would pay I'm our that, that would that would pay our hosting fees for a long time <laughs> that would pay our hosting fees for a long time i shouldn't complain i've already slagged I'm, I'm basically every single possible sponsor i just like scare off no wonder no wonder we have no sponsors on this podcast so schuster's story isn't over um now the story of the the four that won gold might be but i think there's still accomplishments for both schuster and usa curling left on the board you know was schuster the first american to win a grand slam no that was jamie sinclair two months after the pyeongchang games when she captured the players championship and despite making three Grand Slam quarterfinals since capturing gold, um, Schuster has not gotten past the quarters in any of those three tournaments. Um, has he followed up his Olympic triumph with a world championship? No. He lost in the playoffs of the 2019 Worlds to Japan, and he obviously was not able to compete in the 2020 Worlds. Um, but he's not about to ride off into the sunset. He he won the 2019 and 2020 U.S. national titles. He appears to be the favorite to again represent the U.S. in a fifth straight Olympics in 2022, assuming that those Olympics happen. And it's going to it's going to be impossible for him to top what happened in Pyeongchang. Um, the road it took to get to that moment against Sweden just makes that impossible. But he can continue to add to his story and he can continue to grow his legend and grow the sport of curling in the U.S. And I, I don't think that part of the story is over, like you said. I think that 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 you can still see a good number of curlers come to the sport partially because of what he's contributing to the game. And I, I think you would be tough to find one athlete who has changed – the popularity of his sport in the u.s as much as john schuster has contributed to to curling at least percentage wise yeah no he's he's mr usa curling now um for sure jonathan this was a lot of fun uh thank you so much for indulging me in this and for offering uh your insight on what was kind of going on in the background between between the olympiads uh, this yeah i had a lot of fun thank you so much for for letting me do this <laughs> maybe we should do more of these yeah who should we do next um the guy from switzerland who uh almost went to jail for basically running a ponzi scheme is it a curler or not yeah he's a curler i mean what about rudy ramsharan if you want to go like sketchy curlers from the past I don't know who that is. You didn't even know it. He won the Briar in 97 with Kevin Martin. Uh, and then he tried to create a million dollar bond spiel. I got TSN to kind of host it. And then it turned out that was a whole Ponzi scheme. It was, like, it was a classic curling scandal from back in the day. <laughs> I'll have to go look it up. We can talk about that. Thanks again, Jonathan. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will talk to you again real soon. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. 
If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.